You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Green Mountain Medicine. The topic of our conversation today is public health and physician leadership in crisis. Timely chosen as our nation continues its fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us today is Dr. Mark Levine, current Vermont Health Commissioner and former ACP Vermont Governor. Some background about him. Dr. Levine received his medical degree from the University of Rochester School of Medicine before completing his internal medicine residency at the University of Vermont and a fellowship in general internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of North Carolina. His career has led him down multiple leadership roles, including service on the ACP Board of Regents and the ACP Ethics, Professionalism, and Human Rights Committee. Through his career, he continues to pursue various academic interests, including health promotion and disease prevention, resident education and curriculum design, and teaching in the ambulatory setting. As medical students, Dylan and I are most familiar with Dr. Levine's work hosting rounds as a teaching professor on the inpatient medicine clerkship. Dr. Levine, we're so glad you could join us today. Thank you. I'd like to start us off today by getting to know your work a little bit better. Tell us about your role as Vermont Health Commissioner and how you got there. What do you do? What do you love most about your job? And what has motivated you to take on this role? Sure. So as you know, I'm an internist first and came from a background in clinical medicine, but also a lot of teaching, as you alluded to, and uh, administrative work and really innovative work in medical education. But practice of medicine and teaching are fundamental to who I am. And I find that um, now I'm teaching on a much larger stage. And I now have the public to add to the list of those who are in my audience, so to speak. But not just the public, people across state government uh, at all levels, from the governor through the legislature, through different agencies that are part of state government. And I find that there's an important voice that's usually uh, needing to be at the table. And it is that of health and public health. I've always, as a practitioner been very interested not just in disease but in health and as you alluded to health promotion disease prevention and that's a fundamental part of public health Um, so I always had an interest sort of a sideline interest in public health so I never had formal training in that area and I find that with my fellowship in general internal medicine and the clinical epidemiology education I got, as well as research, um, that only enriched that interest even further. And after you practice for a number of years, you realize that you can do a lot of good one-on-one with patients, spending time with them at the bedside or in the exam room. One of the biggest challenges is always uh, affecting their behaviors and impacting behavior change. Sometimes you see the results of that in five minutes. Sometimes you see the results of that literally in a decade or two. 
And that's all very gratifying on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but I've always had an interest in trying to do that more on a population level as well. And so uh, working in public health, you really do get to impact through a variety of means, including policy change, uh, people's behaviors. Um, and you get to actually have the whole population of the state as your patient, rather than one patient at a time. And you get to actually do some really good things. You know, in terms of how I got here, I always had that interest. I was working with a group called the Integration Work Group of Primary Care and Public Health, where leaders from groups like ACP and the pediatrics organizations, et cetera, would meet with uh, members of the health department on a regular basis. And we would each enrich each other, and we would each work with each other in ways that improved our ultimate goals whether they be within clinical medicine or in public health. And that group continues to this day. I suppose I was a little too prominent in that group because when the last health commissioner was uh, stepping down, uh, he and I had had a good relationship over the years and clearly he was interested in uh, cultivating my interest further. I knew too many previous health commissioners in the state as well. Uh, so sort of worked out that a little bit of my, my own interest and a little bit of other people's interest in me worked in a nice sort of congruent way to uh, enable me to be in this job. But this job, you know, spans many things. It, it, it does span health promotion and disease prevention, but it also involves uh, significant health surveillance and epidemiologic work, infectious disease work, environmental health work, Public health has always been really dedicated much more to the maternal child end of life than to the aging end of life. But I'm finding uh, opportunities to integrate a healthy aging approach as well. And then there's uh, just uh, a whole array of other activities that one never would have imagined they would be involved in because they didn't learn these things in medical school. So things about lead in the drinking water, um, lots of issues regarding the way people lead their lives in terms of what substances they may use or not use, from tobacco all the way through to fentanyl and cocaine. Um, so lots of opportunities to really take really big picture health problems and public health problems and work on them in very constructive ways. That's, that's fantastic. And just to quickly follow up on that, uh, we were curious um, because, you know, one of the uh, first ways that we've also gotten to know you is through our our shared involvement in the Vermont chapter of the ACP. And we were curious if if there was anything particular about your experience um, serving as the uh, Vermont chapter governor or serving on the um, ACP Board of Regents that has also uh, affected your uh, or impacted your role uh, now as health commissioner. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things ACP has been wonderful for us as I've been able to assume various leadership positions in ACP. Uh, that's very um, character building as well as skill building, if you will. And those kinds of leadership skills one gains uh, within the context of the organization of ACP are so fundamental to your success in so many other arenas. Um, and ACP is, does a wonderful job of cultivating its leaders, enriching their, their skill base and their knowledge base, 
and allowing you to actually uh, work on really good things uh, on a much larger level. Of course, with ACP as a governor, you work on a chapter level, which is the entire state when it comes to Vermont. And on a region level, you actually get to start looking more at governance and how to have fiduciary responsibility for an organization and at the same time impact policy. And with ACP, the things we treasure the most about it is that it really does have all of its positions emanate from policy. So there's a great uh, policy developing shop as part of ACP. And that has been wonderful for me to reflect on as I now work on policy at a level of state government and of impacting the public's health, if you will. So ACP has been very fundamental to who I am. And I'd like to think that I've now brought back something to ACP because in the last couple of years, it's not so subtle even. You may notice that ACP is taking more stands on population health. ACP came out with major positions on, for instance, gun safety, firearm safety, and uh, we're leading other organizations. They've also come out with major uh, positions regarding uh, the substance misuse epidemic. You know, when we look at areas like that, ACP is now moving not from, but moving to a uh, area where population health is taking a prominent position in a complementary way to how focused ACP has been on enriching the life of individual physicians and their ability to have optimal practice habits and practice uh, processes uh, that they exercise during their career. And their whole education shop um, is as diverse now as that as well. Not that I'm responsible for all of that. That began before me. I'd like to think I'm carrying that torch as well and really helping uh, everyone uh, move forward in that direction. So it's been, I think, a nice synergy. You know, I have to say, as a medical student, just listening to you talk about your role and your experience with ACP. Um, has sort of gotten me excited a little bit about the world of public health. It's definitely something I don't think we get enough training or exposure in in medical school. And I'm sure many of our listeners from student to attending level are curious too. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about how as we move into a post-COVID-19 world, what you think the general role and demand is going to be like for physician leaders in public health and governance. And are there qualities that you think internists in particular might be able to contribute. No matter what role you're talking, internists have qualities that will contribute. <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir, but you know the qualities that we really have in internal medicine, we are great data people. We deal with the requirement for data, making sure the data is strong and good data, uh, not junk in, junk out, but the kind of data that we can actually work with. We spend our careers with exercising our clinical reasoning skills, which really is data analysis, data synthesis, integration of data, coming to good clinical judgments. Um, that's internal medicine. And then if you add into that the uh, important professional qualities of compassion, empathy, respect, altruism, accountability, the list goes on, Internal medicine will have a perpetual role 
because we are all, if you will, groomed in that manner and bring those qualities to the table. I do believe that internists have a special way of looking at things, but I certainly don't want to denigrate some of my current colleagues who are state health officials in other states who come from a pediatric background, family medicine background, um, sometimes not even a medical background at all. Everybody brings their special skill sets to the table. I do think in a, in a biased manner though, that we internists really do try to look at the entire spectrum of what I was talking about and integrate that into our daily professional behavior and accountability. So I think that we could play a very strong role. I have to say it's, it's a crazy time to be a physician and certainly to be a health commissioner uh, when we're in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I have to say it's a tremendous honor and a privilege to be health commissioner at this time. It's not something anybody asked for, not something uh, anybody in our population, never mind in our healthcare system, asked for. But it's here amongst us, and I'm amazed at how we've all rallied to the cause across the entire spectrum of our role in healthcare uh, and in the healthcare system. It's hard to believe that it was literally two and a half months ago we had our first case in Vermont. And this whole time warp component is just mind blowing uh, that that much time has gone by. And it's all been adrenaline pumping and uh, nonstop hyperactive, if you will, for the entire time period. And I keep saying this is unsustainable. It can't keep going on at this unsustainable level, yet it still is and we're all still in it. I know that internal medicine is a field that looks at burnout very seriously and looks at the kind of opposite, resilience. Well, it turns out, even in public health, in my own health department, we're having those conversations now because people have been so nonstop doing their jobs in public health and so dedicated to the cause. I mean, this is what people in public health live for, to be able to contribute in an arena like we're in now. But they, they are now all realizing themselves, not just the leadership in my department, but even filtering down through the ranks that they can't sustain this forever and they need to start really doing a little more self-care, really focusing on how they can still bring strength to the table, but be stronger in the process of doing it. So I think that's really, really important. And uh, to have that opportunity to have the department now focus on that brings back a little of what I was so involved with, with the whole resilience and burnout issues in clinical medicine. But again, it's, it's going to be characteristic of anybody who's involved in health in any arena at this point in time. I think that is so important to be you know, mindful of how hard you know, people are, are working at our, at our state government level. And, and our hats are off to you, Dr. Levine, and your, and your team for the tireless work. And it, it makes me think, um, like, I think maybe a slight follow-up to the question Matt was asking was, you know, is the team big enough? Like, are we thinking going into the future that there might be expansion for the amount of physicians who are going to be involved in policymaking at a state level? Or, and, you know, could that maybe offset, like, the incredible amount of work that the, the team as it is, is is having to undertake? Uh, or might there be other roles? Yeah, one thing this pandemic is going to hammer home solidly is the underinvestment of our society 
and uh, government in public health and in prevention. Um, something I've talked about long before we've had pandemic to worry about. If you compare the US healthcare system to Europe, you find that we severely underinvest in prevention and in public health. Europe's percentage of their, we'll call it their GDP, is usually in the teens uh, dedicated to these activities. And in our country, it barely registers at a couple percent. And I'm not going to point fingers at different administrations and what have you, but there's been a gradual progressive erosion of our investments in these areas. We're much more likely to invest in high technology and glitzy things than we are to invest in some of these very fundamental aspects of human behavior and public health. You know, when the um, postmortems are finished on uh, how we dealt with COVID-19 pandemic, we're already hearing about the fact that we had zero testing cap capability when the thing started. We had severely short PPE storehouses uh, that were quite inadequate. Um, we had manpower levels at, in public health that were severely understaffed for the level of uh, work that needs to be done, not just when the epidemic hits, but in the preparation for epidemics in general. So just those areas that I've listed, and there's plenty more, indicate to us that there's a lot of lessons to be learned and a lot of opportunities for the future. I do believe that there's a role for physicians, not just health commissioner physicians, but physicians in general and health policy. And clearly uh, there's room at the table. And I think that there's uh, going to be a renewed respect. We're in an era now that unfortunately from high levels of government uh, almost looks down in a condescending way on science and on being data-driven, being evidence-based. We've seen the CDC being a little bit marginalized, even though worldwide they're regarded as a preeminent public health organization, one of the leaders in the world. So we need to return to that point where the knowledge base, skill base, the science-driven and data-driven approach of an internal medicine physician is represented well at policy tables. And as our country tries to find its way through this pandemic and then hopefully out of the pandemic and be prepared for the next. And in terms of the focus that we have to have on the fact that the most vulnerable people are the ones who are dying at higher rates now, how did they become most vulnerable? And what is it about uh, our society and our healthcare system that allowed the accumulation of chronic disease to the level that we see it. And those who ended up getting hospitalized, and unfortunately many of whom ended up succumbing to the virus, there's a plenty of opportunity for us to have a healthier society from the start that could weather this storm in a much better way. We will continue to keep people alive longer, and so they will age uh, and can accumulate chronic diseases, but they can also age in a healthy way. And I think that attention to healthy aging will need to become a much more preeminent focus of our healthcare system in the future, sure. If I could make an aside, another thing I think we learned from this healthcare crisis is telemedicine actually can work. This whole telehealth focus, the psychiatrists 
learned before the pandemic that they can carry on business that way. I think some of us who use our hands a lot more and lay the hands on the body um, were a little skeptical of that maybe, but we're seeing plenty of success with that to the point where now we're opening up the healthcare system and people are still more reluctant to come back into it. And they're finding that they can continue to work in a telephone or telehealth medicine framework successfully. So I think that that's pretty incredible in itself. And we should continue to learn from that lesson. We're also learning that we can have our healthcare payers feel that we can do a credible job in that setting and reimburse us for that, which I think is really important as well. I think that we are learning a little bit about patient fear and not reporting symptoms. As I've said to others at press conferences and what have you, I don't think a side effect of COVID-19 is that it protects you from heart attacks and strokes. But curiously, we're not seeing as many of them, most likely because people aren't reporting their symptoms and aren't reporting with their symptoms because they're afraid they're going to contract the virus in the emergency room which they should not worry about because that's some of the safest places we have in the state within our borders of our healthcare centers. But I think there's also been some pleasant surprises during the pandemic. We have seen much more attention to smoking cessation. I sort of offered that to the population on one, one time and said, while you're staying at home and staying safe, maybe this is a good time to quit because we know most people want to quit. They just haven't actually found the right time and an activity to do it with. And the hits on our websites for smoking cessation and on our telephone lines and all of that are astronomical now. And uh, I'm hoping they translate into greater cessation rates. Similarly, um, people are reporting working out more because they actually have time to work out in their home gym or what have you. Well, that's might as well have some positive impacts from this crisis that impact overall health and reduce chronic disease. Unfortunately, we do see some of the opposite, which is rates of alcohol use seem to have gone up, <clears throat> hopefully still in a healthy alcohol use way and not an unhealthy. And we know that those who already have substance use disorder have been challenged in very new and unique ways during this crisis and hope that um, we can at least keep them stable and not have them deteriorate in any significant fashion. Hope that answered that question well. Yeah, certainly. And actually, I was just going to say that uh, particularly um, the plug for telemedicine is uh, it hits close to home for me. Actually, the mm-hmm. Larner College of Medicine has just started a telemedicine curriculum um, for uh, third and fourth year students. I'm currently in it right now, and we're going to get a little bit of uh, dedicated education on it, which because I think, like you're saying, it's going to be such a much more used part uh, of or mode of uh, care delivery that we're going to see in the future. And I think, you know, this pandemic has really proved its effectiveness. So, you know, it's exciting to kind of uh, ride that wave a little bit of how we're going to uh, use that going forward. And that, you know, as students, we can already start to get some preparation to be effective at it in the future. Sure, there'll be not only a better developed curriculum, but there'll also be a little more research into it and uh, some systems-based research that actually helps make it work more smoothly, better delineate where it can be very, very helpful, uh, where the physician as sort of the manager across the board can learn how to manage their population 
and know what part of their population is best managed by this kind of technology as opposed to face-to-face -face encounters. So I was going to go back just to talk a little bit specifically about our state of Vermont. And actually, you know, we've been getting um, weekly updates from our Office of Medical School Education that features um, some of the, you know, the national numbers. And it's been really encouraging to see, you know, how well Vermont has done kind of after an initial surge with uh, a high rate of um, per capita deaths uh, with COVID. And now that we've had like a, ver a very low case rate and really a, a very low death rate over the past couple of weeks. Is there anything that uh, you'd like to speak to in terms of how Vermont has kind of been able to accomplish this? Yeah, sure. I won't say it's all with tremendous skill and pre-knowledge. Uh, there's been an element of luck as well, uh, but that's okay. Uh, but, you know, first of all, you have to be decisive in the midst of a crisis. You have to have good staff and good departmental strength within a health department uh, that is valued, that is trusted, that is integrated into all decision-making so that you really do come from a position of strength and not from just a helter-skelter, you know, let's do this, let's do that, because it seems like we got to do something. You know, so a very uh, organized approach. Believe it or not, there are department divisions of emergency preparedness within health departments who spend, you know, their, their world preparing for something like this. But needless to say, every pandemic is different from the other. And unless you're 102 years old, you didn't participate in the previous pandemic. And so we've had minor ones along the way that didn't seem minor at the time, but compared to COVID, clearly are. So what happened in COVID-19, if I could crystallize it in a sort of a nutshell, is the activity began, obviously, in China and started to spread across the world. People in this country in high positions are being accused of varying degrees of denial and not willing to message appropriately. But the bottom line is, you know, people saw this coming and had some time to prepare. But the problem is, as I've alluded to with a previous question, the country wasn't really prepared in some very fundamental ways. So the way you want to deal with a virus like this as it begins to enter your country is through containment. And we did that well when it came to Wuhan, China, and shutting down all flights from Hubei province and making sure that nobody could bring the disease here, or if they did, they were appropriately quarantined and given a chance to develop the disease out of circulation from the general population. But then everything sort of fell apart after that. Uh, because we, we knew the virus was spreading through Asia and then through Europe. People were flying here from vacations in Italy and Spain and what have you, and unknowingly bringing the virus back with them. We really had no structure set up to contain it at the border, if you will, even if the border was an airport. And beyond that, we had nothing set up to contain it once it appeared within our communities, because we didn't have the testing structure, infrastructure in place to be able to find it quickly and deal with it. So that box-in strategy of test, isolate, contact trace, quarantine, which is fundamental public health surveillance, uh, didn't really have an opportunity to unfold here. We had to go immediately to these non-pharmaceutical interventions to 
the so-called mitigation strategies, which include, of course, no mass gatherings, restricting visitation, moving on to social distancing, facial covering, stay at home, stay safe. All of that had to happen. Closing schools, closing businesses, you name it. So that's all this country could do at that point because they couldn't have an effective containment strategy like countries like South Korea, for instance. So what we had to do is look at the curve, if you will, and you've heard the term flattening the curve. We had to look at where we were on the curve at all different times and with a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of guesstimation, try to plot out how we would sequentially approach this as we saw cases evolving. Knowing that when you start seeing cases in the community, in the hospital, unfortunately in the medical examiner's office, you know you're too late already. So you need to sort of anticipate that and try to be upfront in it so that when you pull the trigger on these various mitigation strategies, they have an opportunity to work at the appropriate time and do that, quote, flattening of the curve. The flattening of the curve is purely to protect the healthcare system. Because if you overwhelm the capacity of the healthcare system with abundant cases and a very rapid peak, rise and fall, you have failed because the healthcare system could not prevent the number of critical illness and ventilator need and death that would occur if you exceeded its capacity. So we like to feel like in Vermont, we actually timed things in a way that worked well, so that though we were prepared for these huge surges, we never actually got, which was really important to, to keep in mind. And even more importantly, looking at the vulnerable populations, which of course are the elderly, those with chronic disease and those with immunocompromising conditions, and those who live in congregate settings, where disease can be vectored in and quickly spread because this is such an infectious virus. Uh, we need to do, really look at all of that. So our earliest experience was very well informed and somewhat blemished, if you will, by the two nursing homes in Chittenden County that had the biggest problem. And indeed, to this day, the deaths in those two sites still account for over 50% of the deaths we had in Vermont. But the silver lining on that is we learned so much from them and we have had, knock on wood, so few other experiences like those during this time, which is what has made our uh, numbers in Vermont look so good. If I could think of something I would have loved to have known ahead of this, it is that you need to protect nursing homes, correctional facilities, whatever congregate setting you're talking about, you need to protect them from the people who enter them, not from the people who are there, but from the people who enter. And the people who enter are either staff who have lives in the community, or in the nursing home case, just as importantly, new admissions who may come from an area, as one did, with a much higher incidence of COVID-19 and come to you in an asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic state where then they can infect the facility. And that's indeed what happened with at least one of our facilities, we believe. 
So learning that, you know, we were very quick on restricting visitation, which I think has helped us a lot. Compassion-less as it sounds, it's really still a very fundamental strategy that's been very important that we're trying to ease up on. But then beyond that, really preemptively and proactively working on policies within congregate settings like nursing homes that would allow them to protect themselves from infection and prevent rapid spread of infection within those facilities. So those are the kinds of lessons learned that I think have helped us tremendously. And then we have a population in Vermont who, thank goodness, are generous, altruistic, and cooperative and have faith in their public health and health leaders, have faith in their governmental leaders, and have really uh, solidly stood behind all of these rather onerous policies that have been introduced that have put more and more restrictions on their life and on the economy, frankly. And so that's been a wonderful part of our success here in Vermont, that we've been able to accomplish that. And we have a lot of leaders who want to listen to people in health and who also want to make sure they do the right thing. And the fact is, uh, they're informed, they're concerned, and sometimes they're even ahead of public health in their thinking process and what they wanna do, and they challenge us in great ways that I think are very, very useful in a very collaborative manner. So I think you know we've had all the ingredients in Vermont uh, put together that really would um, predict success, and in fact, clearly have contributed to success here. Thank you, Dr. Levine. That was uh, so informative. You know, I'm, I'm continually humbled by your perspective from the government side of things. And you sharing all of these lessons that you've learned from battling this pandemic has really underscored for me how much of an evolving process this has been and how many moving parts there are. It's interesting, I remember walking down Church Street before the pandemic and seeing how Things have changed now so drastically, and yet, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult for me to fathom all the complex reasoning and, and data that's driving these decisions. So it's very helpful to hear your perspective on that. Now, you've shared a lot about the lessons that we've learned from things like the potential power of telehealth in medicine or the vital role in the way that we manage and regulate our nursing home admissions. Can you speak from your perspective about challenges that you foresee that still lie ahead for our state from a public health standpoint? Yeah, so one of the challenges that we're continually dealing with is what is the right rate for us to move out of this? Everyone wants to do this reopening of the economy, restarting Vermont as it's called. And we've seen across our country, there are 50 plus different ways to do this. Everyone, thinks that their way is the right way. Some are very top-down driven. Others are much more inviting and and collaborative, but there's no playbook, it seems. CDC is coming out with some playbook materials, which is very helpful, but governors choose to do what they wanna do quite often as well. So one of the stresses and challenges is just to make sure we move at the right pace. We got here very quickly, you know, the incremental onerous challenges to everybody's lives happened in a very short period of time when you think about it. It turns out it has to take longer to move out of it than it did to move into it because we need to continually assess data. 
We need to look at all the metrics that we're looking at every day, and we need to give them usually two weeks because we know that you know it's up to 14 days that a person can be incubating this virus before they become ill. And so if you impact the public with a change, like increasing the size of a mass gathering from 10 to 50, you may not see the results of that in the first few days, you need to give it a couple of weeks before you then go, well, maybe we can go from 50 to 100. Or maybe we can go from restaurants closed to restaurants on Church Street open outdoors only and in the streets. Uh, and then what will it take to get us to eat inside a restaurant? So it's those kind of methodical changes that can't just happen with the flick of a switch. They have to happen very incrementally and with a lot of data gathering in between. And that data involves you know, new cases, percent positivity of tests, healthcare system utilization, hospitalizations, ventilators, ICU, etc. And then looking at our own capacity to test and our own capacity to do contact tracing and see how we're impacted. And then another challenge is the fact we are an island in the middle of a sea of COVID. So our numbers are great in Vermont, but you just need to go next door to New Hampshire or Quebec or Massachusetts or New York, and they're doing better and their numbers are getting less as we go on, but they're just incredible numbers every day of new cases, unfortunately deaths still, um, uh, things we're not seeing here. So how do we protect ourselves in this sort of very, very challenging regional environment, never mind global. Another challenge is, how do we predict the future? There's at least four models I've seen about what's gonna happen to this virus. Most of them involve a little bit of a quiet time over the summer, but then will there be a fall resurgence? Will there be a winter resurgence? Will there be no resurgence? How do you prepare for that when you don't really know which scenario to follow? And you probably want to be prepared for the worst case scenario at any time. Is opening up now going to work for a couple months? And then about the time we would invite everybody back to school, we see that new peak beginning to develop. And then how do you manage that new peak? Is that peak something that you can still manage in the way we did last time around, uh, but require us to become less and less collegial with each other and more distant from one another and more isolated from one another? Or can we actually contain that because we're doing so much testing and contact tracing that we're removing that virus from the population when we first see it flare up and the majority of us can continue to go about our daily lives even though we have that other challenge still of being socially, physically distant and um, having to maybe wear facial covering. Um, but is that price a reasonable price to pay if we can all still engage in most of what we would like to do every day in our lives and not be stuck at home, afraid to leave? So abundant challenges, uh, I probably haven't thought of all of them, but that's, that's a good number for, for starters. There's definitely so much that uh, is still unknown and is still uncertain, and I think one of the biggest struggles is all the uncertainty and that we're, we are, we do have to kind of collect data in this organized methodical way. And that takes time. And it, you know, we want answers now that we can't get now because it's, we don't have enough information. And 
I know that's what we all are struggling against. Uh, just want to, you know, thank you again for your tireless service in leading us to this uncertain time. Because, like you, like said at the beginning of the call, it's it's a task no one wanted, and and it it really required a big step up to do that. So so thanks. And I'll just echo what Dylan said, Dr. Levine. We simply cannot understate how appreciative we are of your service and your contributions to our community, especially during a time like this. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Great spending time with you today. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, Dr. Levine. We know that you have an incredibly busy schedule. I think our listeners will really appreciate to hear, you know, the voice behind all the the text updates and statements that they see on websites. So with that, I think we can bring this to a conclusion. I want to thank all of our listeners again for tuning in to Green Mountain Medicine. You can find uh, this and our other episodes on all podcast streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and then you can also follow us on Twitter at ACP Vermont. We'll see you on the next episode. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Sai. And I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates. 